The title I've given to our study in Psalm 43 is Directives for a Disturbed Spirit. Directives for a Disturbed Spirit. Psalm 43. Judge me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For thou art the God of my strength. Why dost thou cast me off? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. Then will I go unto the altar of God, unto God my exceeding joy. Yea, upon the harp will I praise thee, O God, my God. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. And because of the similar theme and repetitive language this psalm has with Psalm 42, a number of Hebrew manuscripts have linked the two psalms together as one. Here in Psalm 43, we read of the psalmist feeling downcast and depressed, as he did in Psalm 42, while likewise reading of the way in which he dealt with his troubled feelings. Remember, in Psalm 42, we found the psalmist in the midst of his depressed condition, crying out to God, specifically asking, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? And then following such questions with exhortations of faith in God. And here in verse 5 of Psalm 43, we find the psalmist crying out to God, asking the same questions and responding to the questions with the exact same exhortation of faith. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. Because God is the health of his countenance and his God. And the repetitive nature of these two psalms teach us an essential lesson about living life as a Christian in this world. It's the lesson that we recognized in Psalm 35 and Psalm 36. If the Psalms teach us one basic truth, they teach us that the same problems of life must be responded to in the same way. And by this I mean there is only one principal way of responding to our trials and troubles And that one primary way is to turn to the Lord. And isn't this what the Psalms are all about? Over and over and over again, we read of David and the other psalmists, afflicted, worried, cast down, feeling hopeless, struggling to maintain faith in the Lord. And then over and over and over again, we read of the exact same solution, which is, They turn to the Lord in faith, in prayer, in praise, and in hope. So I want to begin this study by asserting once again 
that while our circumstances and our feelings often change, God and the way that we approach God remains the same. You see, God has purposely preserved these repetitive psalms, these repetitive truths and principles for our learning. What David and the psalms dealt with back then is what we deal with day by day, week by week. We're striving to walk with God faithfully. We become attacked by the devil, by the ungodly men of this world. Such attacks cause us to be spiritually, emotionally, mentally disturbed. We become troubled by these attacks, troubled by our emotions that have come from such attacks. And then in that, we turn to the Lord to find comfort, to find encouragement and hope. And the cycle starts over. We find hope. Things rest for a while. We make advances in our faith in the battle. And then the fiery darts of the wicked one are hurled at us. Those fiery darts begin to cause us to be anxious. So we cry out to the Lord for help. God helps us. And then we are back to a place of peace. If you haven't learned that this is the way that things will always be, it's high time that you learn it tonight. This is the cycle that takes place in the lives of the patriarchs. This is the cycle that takes place through the journeys of Israel and the testimony of the disciples. Think about it. In every recorded instance of God's people from Genesis to Revelation, we find the exact same theme. Take Abraham, the father of faith. Abraham exercises great faith in the Lord. He leaves the earth Chaldees not knowing where the Lord's going to leave him. And in that walking with the Lord, we find that Abraham begins to doubt God. He begins to question God's promises. And then in that doubt, Abraham then again trusts the Lord. And then trusting the Lord, Abraham then begins to fear men over God. And then Abraham trusts God again. It's the cycle. It's the up and down. Think of Israel. Israel's in bondage. Exodus chapter 1. In bondage, they're disturbed. What do they do? They cry out to God. God delivers them. Israel rejoices when God brings salvation. In the wilderness, after the rejoicing, what happens? They murmur. God provides for them. Israel's enemies come at them. They fear. They're troubled. They become depressed. God brings victory. After victory, Israel strays. Israel returns. God blesses and so forth. Up and down and up and down and up and down. And this is what we find in the apostles. The apostles leave everything to follow Christ. And then they become agitated with others who will not receive Christ. They want to call down fire from heaven. They're rebuked. And then they walk with Christ again in close fellowship. And in that walking with Christ... Jesus begins teaching them of things that will happen in Jerusalem regarding his death. So what happens? Their hearts become troubled. And then Jesus has to tell them, let not your heart be troubled. And so they're doing their best to maintain peace in the Lord. 
They pledge to be faithful even unto their death. Christ is taken from them, and then they're back down feeling troubled. This is the fight. This is the battle. If you're a true believer in Christ, this is how things will always be. So embrace it and keep fighting. And that's exactly what the psalmist here in Psalm 43 is doing. In the midst of his discouragement, he is striving to seek after God. In the midst of being disturbed in his spirit, he's doing all that he can to delight in the one that his soul loves. Now, looking at the psalm in detail, I want you to notice first his agitated spirit and second, his response toward his agitated spirit. Is your spirit ever agitated by what you see, by what others do to you for being a Christian? If you're taking notes, point number one, Notice the psalmist's agitated spirit. In verse 2, we find that he feels cast off from God. Likewise, in verse 2, we find that he is in great grief and sadness. In verse 5, we see that he feels cast down. He feels depressed. The word is disquieted, meaning he's restless, turbulent. Think of an airplane in the midst of a storm dealing with what we call turbulence. One moment you're flying through the sky smoothly, and the next moment the plane begins to be a little bumpy and shaking. Sometimes in turbulence it is a little up and down, and in that down momentum your stomach is just sinking. This is how the psalmist feels. He's mentally, emotionally, spiritually disturbed. His soul is agitated. And his soul is agitated because he's being persecuted and oppressed by ungodly and dishonest men. Do you see that? His agitation is caused by others, and specifically those who do not know God, those who hate God, those who are the enemies of God. And you'll notice also that his agitation that is caused by unjust men, has caused him to be agitated with his God. The fact that he feels cut off from God, the fact that he's asking why he's feeling so downcast and depressed, demonstrates that he is trying to reason out in his mind why God would bring such things into his life. Can we relate to this? Trouble comes our way. And the first thing we do is ask that three-letter question, why? Why me? Why now? Why in this way? What did I do to deserve this? And sometimes we ask ourselves why we are feeling so down if we truly know that God is with us. Why? Why, God, why? But can we not take great encouragement in the fact, number one, that the psalmist is human like us, and number two, that the Bible is timeless. There's nothing new under the sun. That which has been is here today. So here's point number one. 
the agitated spirit of the psalmist. And then notice second, the psalmist's response. And I want you to pay close attention to how the psalmist responds to his distressing circumstances and his flustered feelings. Notice he doesn't give into his feelings. He doesn't allow his feelings to take control over his life. He doesn't give up on God. Well, if this is the way it's going to be, then I'm done with this Christian faith. He doesn't turn inward trying to find hope and help in himself. He doesn't watch Dr. Phil and Oprah trying to psych himself up. If you will just be this great person, you can do it on yourself. No, he turns to God. Are you listening? When troubles come into his life, notice he doesn't run from God. He runs to God. And running to God, we find him doing four things. First, in the midst of his agitation, he recognizes who God is. He recognizes, verse 2, that God is his strength. He's weak. He needs strength. Where can he find strength? Mental strength. Spiritual strength. Strength to make it through the next day in his God who is strong. For thou art the God of my strength, the psalmist says. He recognizes also, verse 4, that God is his exceeding joy. He says, verse 4, Then will I go unto the altar of God, unto God my Exceeding joy. Peter tells us that God through salvation gives joy unspeakable and full of glory. Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is joy. To know God is to know joy. Though he feels downcast turning to God, he recognizes that he has a source of joy in him. And then verse 5, he recognizes that God is the health of his countenance. God is the health of his person, translated as God is the one who saves. God is salvation. So you see, in the midst of his turbulent troubles, he stopped and he recognized that he had someone to turn to. And the problem with so many suicides today is People don't understand that they have someone to turn to. They feel like they're all alone and they're trapped. The psalmist realizes he has someone to turn to. He recognizes he has a place of refuge to run to. And he realized that God was with him and God was for him. Listen, this is what it means to be still and know that God is God. Psalm 46.10 to be still and know that God is God is to stand back from the situation and to recognize who God is. So this is what we must do during instances in which our soul becomes disturbed. We must first recognize who God is. And how do we do that? By opening up our Bibles. Our Bibles reveal to us who God is. Is And who is God? Well, He's the Almighty. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. He's the sovereign one. He's the potter. 
He is the one who can work all things for our good and His glory. He's the one who can be our light in the midst of our darkness. He's the one who can give us joy in the midst of our sorrow. God is our life. God is our hope. God is our peace. God is our very salvation. And that's why we need to be in God's Word each and every day. We're prone to forget. We're prone to wonder. We're prone to become distracted by the thousands and millions of voices of this world. So we begin here. We renew our mind by the Scriptures. We begin by meditating on our salvation and the relationship that we have with God through Christ. doesn't matter what we're feeling. If we know that we're in Christ, we know we're in a safe place. The second thing we find the psalmist doing is praying. He not only recognizes who God is, He prays. And listen, when we come to recognize who God is, it will be our natural response to cast all of our care upon Him. One of the reasons we don't pray like we should is directly related to our lack of knowing who God is. We talk of George Mueller of Bristol. We call him this great man of prayer. But you need to recognize that this man was a great man of prayer Because he was a great man of the word. He knew his God. It said that George Mueller read through his Bible over 100 times in his life. No wonder he had childlike faith. No wonder he was a prayer warrior. He knew God. So see the link. The people who do know their God will be strong and do exploits. The people who do know their God will pray. If we know that God is faithful, if we know that He's able to help us, we will pray. But if we are doubtful about Him hearing us and helping us, we won't pray. You see, what we think affects how we live. Our orthodoxy affects our orthopraxy. Our belief touches our behavior. And knowing that God is a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God, the psalmist does what? He prays. And what exactly is prayer? What does he pray for? Notice it. He prays for God to fight for him, and he prays for God to guide him. In verse 1, he says, To God, in prayer, judge me, you who knows all things. You, the one whose eyes are in every place beholding in the evil and the good, you judge me. Lord, you plead my cause. In other words, Lord, you fight for me. You step into my situation. You take care of it. I can't deliver myself from these ungodly men. Lord, you and you alone must deliver me from it. You see, the psalmist is helpless. He is really, truly throwing himself at the mercy of God, casting all of his care upon him, knowing that God cares for him. That's what prayer is. Prayer is coming to understand our helplessness and God's grace and mercy, his ability to help us. And then he says, verse 3, O send out thy light and thy truth, and let them lead me. 
Let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. And here we find that he is praying for God to guide his steps, notice it, and to guide him to him. He's praying that he will grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. He's praying, like Paul, that he would know God and the power of his resurrection. He knows God, but in the midst of his trouble, he wants to know God, know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. Can I pause here and have you note the God-focusedness of his prayers? He doesn't pray for carnal wants. He prays for spiritual needs. I fear that much of our prayers focus on carnal wants over spiritual needs. I, I fear that much of our prayers are temporal in nature rather than eternal in nature, physical in nature over spiritual in nature. Lord, get me out of the situation. That's it. That's what we pray. Lord, get me out of the hospital. I don't want to be here. The food's gross. I'd much rather have a steak and a salad and a baked potato. See, physical. Wait a second. So you're laid up in the hospital. What should you pray? Lord, help me to be a witness for Christ. Help me to learn through this suffering. So you've lost your job because an employer or an employee falsely accused you of something that you're not guilty of. What should you pray? Lord, I pray for vengeance upon this man who said this. Wait, time out. Why don't you pray that you would grow in Christ's likeness through the sufferings of what's taking place like Peter tells us to do? Look, the psalmist is praying that God would draw him, the psalmist, near to him, God. And this is what we may, we must pray during times of agitation. We need to pray like Christ. How did Christ pray? He prayed, not my will, but thine be done. In fact, Luke tells us that being in agony, Christ prayed more earnestly. He didn't pray less earnestly, but more earnestly. That's what we find here in the psalmist. In the midst of the darkness, he says, send the light of wisdom to lead me in the way that I should go. So what should be our prayer for the nation? United States of America. It's dark. It's getting darker. Lord, give us a president that will lead us out of our physical problems. That's what Israel prayed in Acts chapter 1. They thought a physical king was going to relieve them from their physical oppression by the Romans. Wrong. <laughs> Jesus had to remind them that they are going to be witnesses in the world and through the gospel the kingdom will be advanced. See, we're so focused on physical. And the scripture is trying to adjust our eyesight from physical to spiritual. We need to pray that God's light, God's truth, God's gospel would be known. That's what we pray for our nation. That's what we pray for our community. Christ is the light of the world. What shall it profit a man if he makes a lot of money in his business and dies and goes to hell? What shall it profit our nation if abortions are banned forever and babies grow up hating God? What shall it profit? You see? 
We need to pray spiritually with eternity in mind and people's relationship to God in view. So notice the third thing. Notice the third thing regarding how this psalmist exercises faith in God. All these things connect. He stops. He recognizes who God is. He prays. And then he exercises faith in God. Remember, stop, drop, roll. During times of fiery trials. Plug this into your mind. Fiery trials. What do you do? Stop, drop, and roll. Stop. Don't let the circumstances distract you. Recognize who God is. Drop. Drop to your knees in prayer. Drop on your face. Cry out to God. And then roll your burdens upon Him. Cast your burdens upon the Lord and He shall sustain thee. Stop, drop, and roll. It's spiritual. He exercises faith in God. And really, look, the essence of prayer is exercising faith in God. Turning to God in prayer rather than trying to take matters into our own hands is a great demonstration of faith. Lord, I can't. You can. So I'm going to pray and let you worry about it, as Luther said. Verse 5, notice it. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? I don't know. But I know I need to hope in God. And there's his faith. There's his confidence. For I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. His feelings are stirred. Sometimes he doesn't feel like praising God, but he's going to do it nevertheless. That's faith. I don't feel like reading my Bible, but I know I need it. So you do it. That's faith. I don't feel like going to church, but you go anyways because you need it. God says it's for your good. That's faith. Look, though the psalmist feels miserable, His feelings never once extinguish his faith in God. Though he is agitated, there's no letting up on doing what he knows God wants him to do. That's faith. He believes that God is good and God will help him as he draws near to God. That's faith. That will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is what? Stayed. On thee, glued. Feelings change, but my faith is not going to change. My love for him doesn't change. And then finally, we find that he desires to worship. He desires to worship. He desires to worship God privately in verse 5. And then he desires to worship God publicly in verse 3. He says, verse 5, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him. Personal, I shall yet praise Him. There is His private worship. Like Paul and Silas praising God in the midst of their personal trials, so this psalmist worships God privately. But doesn't stop there. He says, verse 3, O send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. Speaking of Zion, 
the public place of God's presence and worship. He wants to be with God's people. He wants to be in that place where God is adored by his brothers and sisters in Christ. So during times of agitation, we need to turn to God's word in private. We need to enter into our personal prayer closets as Jesus teaches us while we also gather among the saints in that place where God is collectively worshipped by others, or we sh- I should say with others, who are dealing with the same problems that we're dealing with. Look around. You think you're the only one dealing with the problems of life? Think again. Brothers and sisters in Christ going through their own battles, their own agitations, and striving like you to maintain faith in God. And that's the beauty of the church. We're in the race together. We can uplift one another's hand in the Lord when we become weary and weak. These are the directives for a disturbed spirit. And the question is, will we put them into practice in our own lives when we find ourselves disturbed.